2: Fails. my name is Zach Twomley. You are a history friend and you are listening to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. 2018 has been an absolutely fantastic year for us and 2019 is going to be even better. It's been so good because we've had such great support. And if you would like to make 2019 the year that you begin to support when diplomacy fails, well, I'll have you know there's never been a better time to support. Whether you're just a fan of history, whether you're a history nerd, whether you're a history friend, whether you're interested in being a delegate and going all the way to the Paris Peace Conference and taking part in the delegation game, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails And I'm sure we'll find something there to interest you, whether it's an hour of extra content every month, add free episodes complete with the scripts, or the aforementioned delegation game. There's bound to be something there to support you and your history needs. If, on the other hand, you don't want to part with your hard-earned money, which I completely understand because I don't either, then, well, thanks for downloading. And the best way you can support this podcast for absolutely free is simply by telling people about it. Tell people that I am engaging in this Versailles anniversary project. And I think it's fair to say that you guys have been doing a good bit of that because I've been seeing the downloads really increase and I've been seeing my engagement spread and people getting excited and asking me about the project and everything else. It's great to see. And I'm really enjoying delving into this era even a lot more than I thought I would. And I thought I'd enjoy it a whole lot. So that should say something. I'm not going to say that it's easy, it's been a very stressful last few weeks. Things are going on in the background, which I'll like you guys about at a suitable point later on, mostly when I know all the details. It sounds very cagey and very mysterious and it is in a way but don't worry all will be revealed soon enough. In any case, pretty soon we'll be launching the delegation game so expect an episode detailing the rules and how it's gonna work in the next few days. Anything else guys? Well I just finished correcting a load of essays and that was stressful enough so I'm not gonna waste any more of your time because my brain is fairly melted anyway. Let's just get into this. Thanks again for listening, and of course, enjoy.
0: 3,000 miles from home, an American army is fighting for you. To
1: the end, at the I.I. For which America stands may
2: endure upon the earth.
0: I earnestly entreat my countrymen to pause before they rush Hitler into this revolutionary change which may well be irretrievable I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. France and Italy, between them, have made waste people the the to the of and the whole field of international relationships is in perilous confusion. If affairs of the world can be set straight only by the firmest and most determined exhibition of the will to lead and make the right prevail. Well, he... Because we're him, because we're him, because we're.
2: You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 19. Today is the 3rd of January 2019, and over this period in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. So before we go any further, I have to come clean about some certain facts. The most egregious being that this was supposed to be released on the 1st of January to coincide with Woodrow Wilson actually arriving in Rome 100 years ago. But I was really hungover and I was really exhausted and, well, you know, all these festivities have a way of catching up to you in certain respects. So rather than release the episode then, I thought I'd wait until, well, everyone else is not hungover and everyone else is back to work and everything else. So here we are on the 3rd of January. Christmas is over, New Year's is finally past us 2018 is in the rear view mirror which sounds incredible because it seems like it was only the other day that i got used to writing it instead of 2017 but all time will pass that is one of those laws that i've learned in my infinite wisdom but another thing i've learned is that the versailles anniversary project is really taking up an awful lot of my time and if you weren't aware There's an awful lot more content to come. But today we're not talking about the future, we are talking about the past. A hundred years ago, Woodrow Wilson was in Italy. He was touring around that boot-shaped peninsula and he was trying to do what he had already done in France and in London. Specifically, get the Italian people on side with his vision of what this new world order would look like. A huge thanks to all of you who have supported this podcast in 2018. Perhaps this seems a little bit repetitive, but I just really wanted to get everyone properly all thanked and make sure that you know that I appreciate you, whether you're supporting us monetarily, whether you're just telling people about this podcast, or whether you just joined us literally right now to listen to your first ever episode of this podcast. You're so welcome, I super appreciate you, and I can't wait to see what 2019 holds for my pod baby. It's a really weird way to put it, but anyway, before we get any weirder... Let's just get into this. When we last saw Woodrow Wilson on St. Stephen's Day or Boxing Day to my British listeners, he was doing a very British thing indeed, visiting London. Before Britain was selected as a destination, though, Italy had long been on the to-do list and once he left David Lloyd George to his own devices on the 30th of December, the President made his way towards the final stop-off before the Paris Peace Conference could begin. Arguably the less important pillar of the Allied structure, Italy still could not be ignored. Her intervention in the war had come at a critical time, and Woodrow Wilson would have to meet with her leaders to assure them that such an intervention would be rewarded, just not in the way that they had hoped. Woodrow Wilson's travels would end once he returned from Italy on the 6th of January, and by then the real work would be set to begin. However, in the meantime, the intrigue and activism did not stop in Paris simply because the President was absent. Edward House, to the surprise of no one, took up the President's duties while Wilson was absent, and it was while Wilson moved from London to Paris and then to Rome over late December and early January that a change was effected which was to have profound implications for the Paris Peace Conference. On the same day that Wilson made a speech in London, enthusiastically defending his vision of a new world order and the League of Nations, George Clemenceau was making a speech of his own to the Chamber of Deputies, wherein he mounted what must have seemed like an unexpected challenge to the American stance to those that did not know Clemenceau any better. There is an old system of alliances, Clemenceau boomed, called the Balance of Power, This system of alliances, which I do not renounce, will be my guiding thought at the peace conference. This was not a 180 in French policy, as House and Wilson may have imagined. Instead, it was Clemenceau's political side manifesting itself to loud cheers among his peers in the Chamber of Deputies. Clemenceau believed, to a degree, in the League of Nations. He approved of it as a device to keep the peace but he did not imagine that overnight this new institution could fundamentally alter European or world behaviour, and this speech was a declaration of this idea, which, as it transpired, was closer to the truth than Wilson liked to admit. Perhaps out of frustration as well, Clemenceau remarked on Wilson's candour, a French word which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, but which could either mean candour or political naivety. This double meaning was a deliberate ploy, but it was not the aggressive, bitter act of a Frenchman in possession of a narrow-minded mission which forced him to spurn everything else, as is sometimes assumed. We must emphasise again that Clemenceau and Wilson had been through very different lifetimes by the time they met up. It was inevitable that they should have very different views on the way that the world worked. "'Please do not misunderstand me,' Clemenceau would later clarify to Wilson." We too came into this world with the noble instincts and the lofty aspirations which you express so often and so eloquently. We have become what we are because we have been shaped by the rough hand of the world in which we have to live, and we have survived only because we are a tough bunch. This was a far more measured approach to Wilson's dogma than is often presented but it did not matter because Clemenceau's speech on the 28th of December had the effect of turning House, and subsequently Wilson, against him. By this act, Clemenceau certainly erred, and combined with Wilson's successful identification with the eager David Lloyd George, the French Premier found that his next audience with the President was a good deal less warm. House wrote in his diary on the 31st of December that Wilson was disturbed over Clemenceau's speech in the chamber, and added that, I took occasion to tell him that in my opinion, we would have to work with England rather than with France, if we hoped to get the things for which we were striving through. He, Wilson, needed some persuasion before he agreed with me, but finally did so. I am to take lunch with him tomorrow and have a more general talk. Just like that, it seemed. House had abandoned his old policy of cozying up with the French at Britain's expense. The French Premier's public repudiation of the American vision, House believed, was a step too far and a regrettable political ploy at a time when Allied support of the League of Nations was a sticking point. David Lloyd George, whatever he may really have felt about the utility of the League, refrained from making his cynicism public so long as America's good graces were on his wish list. It appeared that Clemenceau was not this politically perceptive, but the French Premier was also unwilling to kowtow to the American president, simply because he desired his support. French interests would have to be preserved and fought for, and this included the maintenance of the alliance system, which defended France from German attack. Clemenceau knew the mood of his peers, and he was mindful of the fact that while Frenchmen longed for peace and desired to start fresh, The realities of France's strategic situation and her political legacy meant that making a clean break with the past was not nearly so simple as Wilson imagined. That neither House nor Wilson were appreciative of the French situation is demonstrated by House's breathtaking about face towards the French, expressed most plainly in a diary entry on the 1st of January, as Wilson stopped off in Paris just before making his way to Italy. House said... Today I took lunch with the President and we discussed many matters of importance. He is rather full of his trip to England and seems to have had a thoroughly satisfactory time. It is the general opinion that the banquet at Buckingham Palace was the most elaborate effort that any of those attending had ever witnessed. The President told me in much detail of his conversation with Lloyd George, Balfour, Bonner Law and others and we discussed Clemenceau's speech in the Chamber of Deputies. In my opinion, it is the greatest blunder that Clemenceau has made. It may cost France many millions that she might otherwise have had from us. After I read the speech, I became convinced that the United States and England should get closer together and work to a common programme in this peace conference rather than depend upon France. In accordance with this thought, I went a long way with Balfour yesterday and I think I convinced the President this morning that it was the proper policy for us to pursue. Such blunders make me glad I am not given to public speaking. It is a pleasant but dangerous pastime. House was content to hold the fort in Paris while Wilson journeyed to Italy, but he did not sit still simply because the president was absent. Indeed, we can actually see House become more anti-French in the few days that his president was gone. On the 3rd of January, so today 100 years ago, House was writing about a memo he had received from Lord Balfour regarding French propaganda in Syria, a region which the French were coming to regard as a sphere of interest to themselves. House noted with palpable fear on the strategic situation which the Great War had created, as though he had suddenly become aware of it and had previously been blinded by promises of French friendship. Now that he was willing to embark on a new diplomatic course which upheld the English friendship, House would see whatever negative intentions that he wanted to see in the French behaviour. House wrote on the 3rd of January that, The English are beginning to be disturbed over France's growing imperialistic tendencies. Six months ago, France was humble. Even two months ago, she did not begin to feel her importance. But every day now, there is an indication that she intends to assert herself as the dominant continental power. I do not think it is realized by the rest of the world that this war leaves France the only great military power in Europe. Russia, Austria and Germany have gone down, England's army like our own will soon disappear, and there will be but one great military machine in the world other than the British Navy. This fact must be reckoned with, particularly if France insists upon maintaining her army machine at anything like its present strength. I see many evidences that the English are concerned and do not like the prospect. The situation is not unlike that of 1871, when all of Europe sat by and allowed Germany to have her will. The difference there, however, was that there was always a great Russia, a considerable Austria, and a France not seriously hurt by the war she had lost. On the other hand, it is to be remembered that France is a nation of less than 40 million people, and cannot go far alone. This perception gives some indication of how House was coming to view France. His predictions regarding French military supremacy filling this power vacuum proved only partially true, and not at all long-lasting, for the reason that House adds in the final sentence. The French were outnumbered almost 2 to 1 by the Germans, which meant that in the long run, she could not maintain her military supremacy, even if the 1920s were to see her throw her weight around to some extent. An offshoot of this viewpoint was that which stated, even if France may not be military predominant, she did possess the most professionally competent army in the world. This myth would be perpetuated right up until the moment when France collapsed in the summer of 1940, a fact which House never seemed to believe was possible, but which the sheer statistics alone provided for, and consequently, Clemenceau worked day and night to guard against. While House developed his attitude towards the French, his president was engaging with a potentially valuable partner in Italy. So we finally come to the Italian situation after all these minutes. Italian pretensions to their neighbouring territory read like a long list of Italian imperialist and irredentist dreams. Under the terms of the treaty which had brought Italy into the war on the Allied side the secret Treaty of London from 1915, which was soon to cause so much controversy and was already having both sides somewhat worried, these dreams were to be realised. Italy would possess its own European empire in the post-war world, to rival that which the Habsburgs had once owned. The Adriatic would be her sea, Illyria and portions of the Balkans her prizes, and the coveted Tyrol region would finally be returned to the rejoicing of all true Italians. The reality of these desires was far messier, of course, and much more dangerous than the Allies had once anticipated, not least because Woodrow Wilson declared himself fundamentally opposed to any such imperialism. This opposition meant that a potentially frosty reception awaited the President in Rome, but at this stage, Wilson was not yet so vocal about how he really felt about the Italian demands. As a result of Wilson keeping his vision somewhat under wraps, the Italian tour proved to be the final gratifying stop-off in an adventure which had brought the president through all the major allied capitals. In Rome, just like in Paris and London, Wilson received a welcome which convinced him that his principles and vision were in line with what the peoples of Europe wanted. In the evening of the 1st of January, Wilson's party crossed the Franco-Italian border and was met by the king's envoy who accompanied them by train all the way to Rome. Along the way they stopped briefly at Turin and Genoa, and to Wilson's satisfaction, Italian tricolours lined the route alongside the Stars and Stripes, just as they had in Paris and London. Once again, cheering crowds lined the routes of his train carriage, and no matter the size of the Italian town he passed through, whether it was high in the mountains or down in the plains, shouts of Viva l'America rang out. Clemenceau be damned, Wilson could easily have mused, the French Premier's archaic views of how Europe worked were evidently out of touch with what the Europeans wanted. From Paris to London to Turin to Genoa and Rome, these citizens of Europe wanted change and Wilson's vision would spearhead that change. How could the statesmen ignore such a tide of passion? How indeed could they forget how warmly the president was welcomed? how could they proceed to negotiate for anything other than the realisation of the President's vision and of their people's desires? Wilson would realise too late that these citizens were not yet as completely in control of their destiny as he liked to imagine. These same Italians would enter down a very different path within only a few months. The opinions of the masses changed, just like the direction of Italy's harsh alpine winds. That is, with ferocious speed and with very little record of what had once been. Italy's war record was able to draw upon criticism as well as praise, but her people and her leaders provided arguably the most striking foil to the idea of allied cooperation, even if in early January Wilson received a warm welcome and little indication of the bitterness which was to follow. Italy's central problem was that her leaders possessed a very different expectation of how the Paris Peace Conference would play out, and they imagined a very different post-war division of spoils than what transpired. Where Italians had imagined themselves filling the hole left by the Habsburgs and the Balkans, Yugoslavia had unexpectedly emerged. And this was only one issue. Even her borders with France contained some measure of contention, and the borders with Austria had never been settled. As the historian George Kiss noted, writing in the aftermath of the Second World War, Italy as an idea presented legions of problems to historians and political scientists alike. Kiss wrote, Seldom in the long history of frontier disputes have a nation's boundaries been discussed in as much detail as those of Italy, and seldom have so many divergent opinions been expressed it proved impossible to satisfy Italy or to contain the feelings of frustration and unfulfilled potential which Italians had been struggling with North and South since unification in the 1860s and 70s. It didn't help that the Italian government was effectively thrown under the bus by Britain and France in the early phases of the Paris Peace Conference when it became clear that Clemenceau and Lloyd George would side with Wilson's uncompromising stance against imperialism rather than uphold that Treaty of London that we mentioned earlier, which the Italian government had clung to since 1915. Had Italians known that Britain and France would break this treaty, it is possible that she may never have become involved in the war in the first place, and that she would have spared her countrymen the nearly 600,000 deaths which were incurred. This possibility is often forgotten. To those of us that know Italy's fate after the Great War and know her statesmen's claims to the Treaty of London were ignored, it is sometimes viewed as tough luck or as only reasonable and as a rejection of the imperialist policies of old. Yet one need only look at the behaviour of Britain and France after 1919 to discern that imperialism was not abandoned. In fact, it increased in other places and under other names. That the Italian claims were ignored where the British and French claims were not meant that not only had the Italian war experience been absolutely horrible, it had also been all for nothing. When Italian men had struggled and died in the most dreadful conditions atop some truly terrifying battlefield scenes so high above what seemed rational or strategically sensible, the thought process went that at least it would be worthwhile in the end. Italians already struggled with something of an inferiority complex before the war. The experience of having her war aims utterly spurned by the Allies, and by the new American power on the block, was worse than a slap in the face. It was akin to a declaration that the British and French did not believe that the Italian sacrifice mattered, and that in any case, there was nothing the puny Italians could do to make London and Paris regret this abandonment of their ally. It's important to look at things from each perspective, and when we look at things from the Italian perspective and come to grips with the unpalatable behaviour of the British and the French, it becomes a great deal easier to understand, but not excuse, why Italians moved towards the political margins in the years that followed, and elected to follow a man who promised to realise their potential to make Italy a world power and the envy of the world, above all to end the humiliation of Italy by righting past wrongs. It's easy to follow the old processes and paint Italy as the bad guy of the Great War or to view the turn to fascism under Mussolini as proof of Italy's inherent badness and to see it as a good thing that Italian imperialism was not given the blessing of those assembled at Paris. However, at the same time, we must accept that Italians were no more expansionist or belligerent than their neighbours. Unjust or grasping their claims on portions of the Balkans may appear, But how were British and French claims on the Middle East therefore justified where the Italian claims upon Turkey or the Balkans were not? The answer, of course, is that none of these imperialistic claims were justified or fair in the post-Great War world, and the ultimate injustice is that a select few powers took advantage of the loopholes and shortcomings of Woodrow Wilson's ideology to attain even greater empires than they had had in the pre-1914 world whereas others were informed that due to some newfound faith in the lofty, high-minded ideals, such empires could no longer exist. It was no wonder Vittorio Orlando left Paris in the end. All this was to come, though, when Woodrow Wilson entered Rome on a triumph of his own making. The faith he was spreading was enthusiastically accepted by war-weary Italians who were desperate to see what they wanted in the president's dogma. Somehow, Italians believed they could have their imperial cake and eat it too, but this was not to last. Wilson must have been mindful of Italian sensitivities, and he was on his best behaviour. Meeting first for a dinner with the Italian king and queen, when it came time for Wilson to propose a toast, the president took the opportunity to highlight the extensive history which Italy shared with the United States through immigration and emigration. It has been a matter of pride, Wilson began, that so many Italians were in our own armies and associated with their brethren in Italy itself in the great enterprise of freedom. The Italians in the United States have excited a particular degree of admiration. They, I believe, are the only people of a given nationality who have been careful to organize themselves to see that their compatriots coming to America were from month to month and year to year guided to places in industries most suitable to their previous habits. No other nationality has taken such pains as that, and in serving their fellow countrymen, they have served the United States because these people have found places where they would be most useful and would most immediately earn their own living and add to the prosperity of the country itself. Woodrow Wilson was then gifted with a laundry list of honorary titles, citizenships and praise, during which time the President remained intensely diligent and respectful. He had useful meetings with Vittorio Orlando during the next few days and he broke the ice between himself and the main Italian delegates, ice which would soon refreeze. Wilson's mission in Italy, as in the other allied states, was one of ingratiation and publicity. He wanted to spell out to the governments of Europe and perhaps to his opposition at home that his vision was a popular and valued one. In addition, it was important to build a rapport and to identify with each of what would become the Big Four before the Peace Conference thrust all of these personalities together in the same room. Wilson was also not above making history for history's sake. On the 3rd of January 1919, so 100 years ago today, the President of America became the first man of his office to meet face-to-face with the Pope. Like Woodrow Wilson, Pope Benedict XV had enjoyed a rise in stature and reputation thanks to the war. Also, like Wilson, Benedict despised the war and its traumas, and since he ascended to the position at the beginning of the war in September 1914, after his predecessor supposedly died of a broken heart due to his inability to prevent the conflagration, Benedict spent the majority of his time working on peace settlements. At one point, Benedict even imagined a ten-point peace plan which addressed each of the problems of the powers in turn, and included learned observations on such issues as nationality, territory, empires, trade, reparations and historical memory. Woodrow Wilson, it was said by some, was moved both by jealousy and admiration to be seen to develop his own points, but not ten, fourteen, because fourteen are better than ten. However, although the President and Pope were connected in their efforts to achieve peace, it could not be denied that Wilson towered over Benedict in terms of influence and importance by early 1919. This, however, did not mean that the President had no use for the Pope's wide-reaching voice. The meeting between the two figures was pleasant if a little cold. Wilson was exhaustively determined not to compromise on his own Presbyterianism by accidentally agreeing to a Catholic blessing, And this occasionally led to awkward scenes where Wilson asked his translator, who spoke in French to Benedict, whether the pontiff's blessings were universal in all Christian creeds. A more uppity pope might have taken offence, but Benedict was all smiles throughout. He offered Wilson a beautiful gift, an ornate mosaic of the first pope, St. Peter. Their first meeting represented one of many curious first-time encounters between some very different individuals during an already eventful year. When he was escorted into the papal apartments, President Wilson had encountered the diminutive figure dressed in white with the white skullcap atop a head of jet-black hair and a face and body which could be described as plain, and that was being generous. His facial features and physical appearance even led Benedict to refer to himself as being an ugly gargoyle atop the buildings of Rome. Plain though he may have been, Benedict seems to have prepared himself well for this moment. He was animated not only with patience and concern, but also with a kindness that enabled him to greet the president accordingly. He took Wilson by the hand and led him into the study for their conference together. There was very little, of course, politically at least, that Pope Benedict could negotiate with the American president, but the papal visit still represented an important first step towards the American political penetration into Europe. It had been a journey of firsts, and all the while, Wilson was accompanied by the music to his ears, the enthusiastic cheers of Italian citizens. Once again, the president felt vindicated. He left Benedict in high spirits and the next day he met with Vittorio Orlando again. Before he left for France, Wilson was determined to stop for a few hours in Genoa, in spite of a terrible storm, to pay his respects to Christopher Columbus. This symbolism, founded in Wilson's genuine interest, demonstrated that America was opening up to the world like never before, and recognising its historic roots. If Italians believed that these roots would lead Wilson to give them all that they wanted, though, they were to be sadly Tragically mistaken. Wilson returned from his Italian trip and arrived back in Paris on the 7th of January 1919. During this period in time 100 years ago then, the President had just finished his final private tour of the Big Four. He was ready to begin the actual festivities which would lead all the way to the formal opening of the Paris Peace Conference in 10 days' time. I had a very long talk with the President today over the private telephone, noted House in his diary on the 7th of January, and I gave him pretty much a resume of what happened since he left Paris. He told me of his Italian trip, with which he was very pleased. What exactly had happened since Wilson had left Paris? In fact, House claimed to have accomplished a great deal. That same day he had met with an emotional Georges Clemenceau, who, House noted, was now all for the League of Nations, thanks to the arguments which had been put forward regarding French security being bound up in the new League. I think of you as a brother and I want you to tell me everything that is in your mind and we will work together just as if we were parts of the same government, Clemenceau exclaimed after having clasped House's shoulders warmly in an embrace. The French Premier, so it seemed, had seen the light and had been persuaded of the core essence of the League of Nations. Reading his diary, House appears to have been the most successful and consistent diplomatist of his age. Here once more had the opposition of an ally been overcome, just like that of David Lloyd George in November. Notwithstanding House's generous account of his activities, the French Premier had come to see the value in not opposing the Americans, at least not as publicly or directly as before. With Woodrow Wilson's return and with the anticipation of all that awaited these men hanging heavy in the air, It was perhaps to be expected that Wilson, Clemenceau and David Lloyd George spared few thoughts for what was happening in Germany. Revolution, so it was said, had finally swept through Berlin and some could be forgiven for believing that here was history repeating itself again. The tardy Allied response had facilitated a Bolshevik triumph in the depressed German capital. Oh, woe. Or had it? Only time could tell whether the fearsome Spartacists represented a momentary threat or a terrifying New World Order completely at odds with that of Woodrow Wilson's making.